The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn in your scriptures to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 30, reading through to verse 35. That's on page 832 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 30. This is God's word. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Gracious God, be pleased now to open my mouth and to give us all ears and hearts to hear that we might see your great and divine plan even in the death of our Lord being outworked. Humble our hearts, but also lift us up to the heavens as we see your goodness and mercy at work. For we ask this in the Savior's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we move this morning into what is perhaps a deeply uncomfortable part of Matthew's gospel, the foretelling of the falling away of the eleven and the denial of Peter. We also see Peter's proud pretensions to the contrary. I will never fall away. And it's not just Peter. The disciples join in with him, declaring their loyalty to their Lord, a loyalty which was quickly tested and ultimately put to shame. And yet here we see our Lord's singular dedication to his Father and to the mission that has been given him. It is our Lord who will go to the cross alone, with none of his disciples, none of his apostles near him. We also see the fickleness, the weakness of the disciples, and by extension, we'd have to include ourselves in that reality. And yet, notwithstanding the sin of the disciples, our sin, their weakness, our weakness, their failure, our failure, we do not see the Lord's purposes thwarted. And the Lord's purposes in this passage are great. They're redemptive. They're healing and restorative. And we're going to see that really in two parts to this narrative. First of all, Jesus comes with a prophetic prediction in verse 30, a prophetic prediction. Remember, not all predictions are prophetic, but this one comes to pass. A prophetic prediction. And then secondly, we see a prideful pretension. 
First of all, a prophetic prediction. We note in verse 30 that the scene has changed from the previous verses. Our Lord has been in the upper room with his disciples celebrating Passover, transitioning to the Lord's Supper. Now, verse 30, we read, they sang a hymn and they go out to the Mount of Olives. Now, remember what our Lord has just told his disciples in the upper room. He's told them, and they were unsure who it was, the disciples, that one of them was going to betray him. John's gospel tells us that after the supper, before our verse 30, Judas has left them. He'll re-enter the scene in verse 47. He's gone away to betray our Lord. But now our Lord says to the 11, verse 31, you will all fall away from me this night. You will all fall away from me. And it's a prediction and a prophecy, in a sense, which the disciples find most unacceptable. They resist it with all that is within them. And that's one of the points of the narrative that we'll see today. It's not the kind of narrative that we would write if we were left to our own devices. Not the kind of narrative that we would choose for the disciples or for ourselves. And we need to understand from the outset because there's meaning beneath the surface of this text. We need to remember God's ways are not our ways. I want you to hear that today. God's ways are not our ways. We like narratives which are neat and tidy and happy and painless, which frankly show the best side of us in every circumstance. But we need to understand God's narrative contradicts that kind of self-preservation. It flatly contradicts that kind of narrative because our narratives before God involve faith, involve sin, involve pain and trouble in order that not we, but God might receive the glory when he delivers us. And he assuredly will. It's a reminder to us from the outset, God uses sin God uses the failure of our lives. God uses the sorrow of our lives to achieve his glorious, redemptive, healing, restorative ends. It's kind of a subtext to the whole narrative before us. And it's brought out by Christ's prediction that the disciples will fail, they will fall away. And yet when he says that, he's revealing a complex design. Their falling away is according to design. It's vital we see this. Jesus will go to the cross alone. There'll be the beloved disciples stood at the base of the cross uh, with, with Jesus' relatives Uh, But the rest of them are gone. By the design of God and by the weakness of the apostles, Jesus goes to the cross alone. His closest friends depart from him. His closest friends, because of their own weakness, their own failure, and because of the design of God, depart him that very night. And it will be a failing in their lives, undoubtedly, which would have stayed with them for the rest of their lives, that in their Lord's moment of need, they were nowhere to be found. 
And yet the disciples' narrative is not the chief narrative of this text. It's God's design, God's purposes, God's narrative. Because the will of God is very evident in all this. Verse 31, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, for it is written. The will of God is plain to see. Zechariah 13 verse 7 is this very prophecy. The falling away, the striking of the shepherd Jesus, the falling away of the sheep, the disciples, was going to happen in accordance with Scripture, in the fulfillment of Scripture. In other words, God ordained these events. And we see in Scripture how God often ordains uh, his plans to come to pass by the hands of the wicked or through sorrowful means, or through trouble, or failure, or sin. We see that all the time, in fact. When bad things happen to us, we ought to remind ourselves God is always in control. But if we look at the prophecy of Zechariah 13.7, I encourage you to turn there. Zechariah 13.7, we'll see there's something more than just the generic, broad plan of God at work. It's more than just God has said this will happen. Actually, what Zechariah tells us is that God himself will make it happen. That God himself will be the one who summons the sword to strike the shepherd. Listen to what Zechariah 13.7 says. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. It's clear absolutely that the Lord will use the Romans. He'll use Pilate. He'll use the wickedness of the Jews to bring about the death of our Savior. But fundamentally, what we're being told in this text in Matthew and Zechariah is not that it's the Romans or the Jews acting. It's the Father acting against his Son. Listen to it again, friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. The one whom God had appointed to deliver his people. The Lord's anointed, the Lord's shepherd. He says to the sword of justice, awake against my shepherd. And it gets even more staggering for our our puny minds when he says, against the man who stands next to me. What? The eternal son who dwells at the right hand of the father on high. God should say of that one who is of the same substance with him, equal in power and glory, God should say, my sword of justice will strike and pierce him. It's a staggering prophecy to read. The eternal son who stood at the right hand of the majesty on high, who in his incarnation became the God-man, God summons the sword of divine justice against him. The Father does it. It is the Father's will to put him to death. Matthew Henry, an old commentator, says, He and the Father, that's Christ and the Father, are one. He was from eternity by him, as one brought up with him, and in the work of man's redemption, he was his elect, in whom his soul delighted, and the counsel of peace was made between them both. 
And yet Isaiah says it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief. It is the father who is striking the son with the thrust and pierce of the sword of divine justice. The result is the sheep will be scattered. What did we see that very night? The sheep being scattered. The disciples deserting him. God's plan. The Father's plan. That he would strike the shepherd. And the sheep would be scattered. And following on from that quickly, our Lord makes a comment, another prophecy, which, which bypasses the disciples. They, they don't notice it, but we must surely notice it. We, we read there in verse 32, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He says, I'll be struck, you'll be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. It's, it's a prophecy and comment that goes straight over the disciples' head. They're just caught up in this moment of pride whereby they're hearing they're all going to deny him. And their pride immediately shuts their ears to anything else our Lord has said. But our Lord is telling them that the terrible events of this night and the next three days, his betrayal, his death, that the time of mourning while he's in the tomb, then his resurrection will take place. He says, I'm going to go back to our place. I'm going to go back to Galilee from whence we came. It's a reminder to us, friends, God's purposes in this text are not ultimately to condemn his disciples. It's not simply to reveal their failure and pride and sin, but ultimately the purposes of God are redemptive and restorative. Redemptive and restorative. He predicts his resurrection. He predicts his return to Galilee, where they will meet again. He's saying tonight is not the end. Your denial and departure from me is not the end. He says, I'm coming back to you. I'm coming back to you who will betray me, who will turn away from me this very night. Friend, it's a heartwarming reminder for us. And we'll see this more fully in our second point as we go back to Zechariah's prophecy. It's a heartwarming reminder of God's goodness and tender care to his children. Isn't this remarkable? He tells them, you're going you're gonna to fail me this very night. And then he says, but I'm going to come back and gather you unto myself. That's the purpose of God here, a reestablishment of friendship and fellowship and communion between Jesus and his disciples, so that to use the language of Zechariah, they will call him their God, my Lord and my God. We see embedded in this promise, I will go before you, to, I, will, I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Embedded is the promise of the assurance that ultimately it will be well with their souls. But that statement for the moment is lost on the disciples because it precipitates, it produces in Peter and in the rest of the disciples, but especially Peter, a prideful pretension. 
a prideful pretension, our second consideration. Peter's protest and his pride are quite something in this text. Peter answered him, verse 33, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. William Hendrickson, the commentator, states, states at the moment, the moment Peter said this, he meant every word of it. His desire to be and remain loyal to Jesus, come what may, must not be questioned. I agree with him. Peter really thought he meant it. And that's the sad thing about this. But good intentions don't get us to heaven, do they? Good intentions actually here perhaps reveal his pride. Hendrickson continues to identify three problems with what Peter says here. Uh, Though they all fall away, I will never. Hendrickson says, firstly, he treats Jesus' words with disbelief. Jesus said, you will all fall away. Peter said, oh no, not me. He said, you've got it wrong, Jesus. Secondly, he says he treats his fellow disciples with disdain. Notice how he demeans their abilities to stay loyal and elevates himself. Uh, When he says, I will never fall away, that's an emphatic I in Greek. It's like when our Lord says, I am the good shepherd. Peter says, I, I will never fall away. And thirdly, Hendrickson says, Peter simply has an inflated opinion of himself. That's the essence of pride, isn't it? Others may stumble, but I will not. His desires may well have been honorable, but his estimation of his own abilities were not. They were far from the mark. And it ought not have been so with Peter or the disciples. Had not Peter been raised on the Old Testament with all the examples of foolish pride we find therein? Had he not been with our Lord when our Lord said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek? He had. He had just been called as a disciple. Peter's problem is this. He simply forgot what he knew. He was so caught up in himself. He had not learned spiritual lessons which would disarm himself of his own foolish pride. And our Lord appears to have a private word with him there in verse 34. I think it's private. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You see, there's a falling away, a departure, and then there's an active denial. And that was for Peter, the one who shouted loudest about his abilities and faith and loyalty. To him, it would be given to deny his Lord three times. There's the solemn declaration here from Jesus that we see elsewhere in the scriptures. Truly, I say to you, truly, it's a prediction, it's a prophecy of the Son of God himself. The solemn force should have been self-evident to Peter. Truly, I tell you, 
And notice the specificity of our Lord's prediction. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter could not have been left in any doubt that this was going to happen. I wonder what Peter thought. That he would deny his savior, not once, but three times. This is the one who had seen his Lord and savior do remarkable things teach remarkable doctrines, the one who he had earlier declared to be the Christ, the son of the living God. And this one now is saying, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. In spite of Peter's protestations before and after this, I suspect Peter was crushed on the inside. It's been a visceral experience for him. We can almost imagine ourselves there on the Mount of Olives with Peter. Jesus predicting their falling away. Peter puffing out his chest, saying, though they all fall away, I will not. And as a result of Peter's uh, inappropriate language about his fellow disciples, they all puff their chest out, and all the disciples said the same, filled with pride, you can imagine being there and seeing this house of cards collapse before our very eyes. But perhaps we don't need to imagine being there. Perhaps we can think of times where we have failed our Lord in a similar manner. Perhaps we can think of times where in our workplace we've kind of ducked down behind our monitor when we should have said something to defend the honor of Christ to those who are blaspheming him. Perhaps we can think of a family setting where there's the sorrow of unbelief in our own families and somebody said something and we should have answered back. Or perhaps we've not taken the time or the opportunity to declare Christ when we should have. That's to say, friends, in spite of our best intentions, in spite of our own estimation of our own abilities and our loyalties to Christ, we too have failed. You see, the denial of Christ does not simply belong to Peter or the eleven. And we have to say, friends, for some, denial is the end. To be quite clear about that today. For some, denial is the end. Judas had gone out, left the twelve, left his Lord, he returns in verse 47 to betray his master with a kiss. From there he goes to take his own life. Died in unbelief. To deny Christ now in a Judas-like fashion is not only death in this life, but death in the life to come. The pains of hell forever. But we know for Peter, we know for the disciples Something better is going on. This narrative is a narrative of Peter's restoration, ultimately, of the disciples regathering unto Christ. Why? For it was written. The prophecy of Zechariah tells us so. 
Verse 7, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Listen to this now. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Here we see, friends, the very purpose of this narrative. God makes a distinction between his people, the Jews. Two-thirds are cut off in unbelief. One-third is kept. The one-third pass through the fire of hard experience like the disciples did those next few days. And yet the purpose of passing through the fire is not condemnation or destruction. It's refinement that what they have, yes, a weak faith. Yes, a faltering faith. Yes, a betraying and denying faith, yet still a faith. That faith may be refined and purified and made stronger. That's God's purposes in this narrative. Yes, it is so that Christ should go to the cross alone, but also that the disciples should be made pure in their faith. They should be strengthened in their faith. You see how the prophecy of of, of Zechariah resurrects the language of the Abrahamic covenant? I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. That's precisely what God promised to Abraham. I shall be your God, and you shall be my people. Not the two-thirds who are cut off, but God's children remain God's children. Though the prophecy of Zechariah spoke of the the striking of Christ and his death the cross, which led to the sheep momentarily being scattered, the case for the disciples and the sheep of God is that they will not remain scattered and the shepherd will not remain struck and dead in the grave. Rather, Christ will be struck. That you, dear Christian, might be saved and brought back into communion, into fellowship, into the bonds of divine love. Christ died for that end. The great desire of our hearts, surely as Christians, is this. The Lord is my God. And the great desire of God's heart I will say, they are my people. That's what it means for God to be our God and for us to be his people, that he has delivered the Christian from their sins. He has given the Christian the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he does so not just through the work of Christ, but, friends, he does so by breaking our pride He unseats us from the heart, the throne of our heart, and he takes up residence on that same throne. He throws us out, as it were, 
that he might take up residence. Humbles our pride that we might be his followers, we might be his children. Friends, what a great goal of God this is. What a great goal this is. It took the death of the Savior, the humbling of your heart to achieve this blessed union between you and Almighty God. It took the striking of the Son by the Father to achieve this great end, that we and our Lord should be one. And if this work has been done in you, friends, we say this work is irrevocable. It cannot be undone. It cannot be overturned. God promised. God prophesied. God enacted. It is done. It is finished. Once for all. Once his child, forever his child. But if there are any here today who do not possess Jesus in this way, who by faith do not love and rest upon Jesus for all his work, friends, you don't have God as your father. And the striking of Christ is not for you. In fact, God will strike you on that final day if you don't embrace Christ. The judgment that was poured out on the Son will be poured out upon you. Because the only means of escaping that judgment is not by what you do, not by decisions you make, not by good works. It's by faith in the Savior. And we would urge any here this day, dear friend, if you do not have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, receive him this day. Receive him this moment. God will say of you, you are my person, you are my son, you are my daughter. And you will say, the Lord is my God. Friends, in spite of our failings now, and surely they are many and sometimes almost catastrophic, in spite of our sin now, In spite of all the hard, objectively hard and terrible experiences that we have all gone through in one way or another and one degree or another, the purposes of God are being outworked. And those purposes are for salvation. Those purposes are for restoration. Those purposes are for healing. And those purposes are that we might commune and have fellowship with the triune God. We're called then, friends, to look beyond, yes, even our own sin, even the trials and temptations of this life, we're called to look beyond those things to the risen and ascended Savior and his resurrection and ascension back to heaven is the assurance that all that God has promised will come to pass. We empty ourselves of pride and we rest upon the Savior so that he might fill us with his Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, how we need you. Our need for you 
is absolute and total. Not one of us can say that we have given you counsel or assisted you in any way. Lord, be pleased to work in each one of us that faith that looks to the Savior who is struck by divine justice on our account that we might be your children. Bless us with faith, repentance, and trust. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.